Hello, welcome to the Queer Q. I'm Lena. And I'm Nick. And today we're joined with two wonderful filmmakers, Annalise Ophelian and Storm Miguel Flores, both who worked on wonderful documentaries that highlight the queer community, such as working with Miss Major on Major or the documentary The Whistle, which I believe is circuiting in film festivals right now that highlights the queer community in Albuquerque in the 70s and 80s. And so our first question right now is, what is your process like as an indie filmmaker um, in the entertainment industry? And what do you look for in stories when you are approaching these documentary topics? You want to kick off? You want me to kick off? You kick off. All right. I'm going to start by saying I'm, I'm a little more interview shy than Annalise, so I will often be like, go for it. Go and, for it. and I usually just want to hear what he has to say. So I'll yeah. be like, I'll give you this one. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think that it's a kind of two-pronged um, sort of fork for both of us, really, which is that when we're making our own work, uh, I think the work is really motivated principally by telling stories of communities that tend to not be told, right? Like we're, we're most documentaries working with stories that are less known um, and very often in marginalized communities. And that means the process needs to be, I think, very purposefully and avowedly one that seeks to um, be a part of the, like undoing that marginalization in the process of the filmmaking. Because like when we're telling marginalized stories, we're often doing so with this sort of eye toward increased storytelling and inc increased connection is part of how we get justice. And so we wanna mimic that in the filmmaking process as well. So that's centering people as experts in their own experience. That's working very collaboratively. Um, I think the language that gets used around documentary in this way a lot is like decolonizing the documentary film process, which is to say not being that outside entity that kind of comes in and mines a community's resources in the form of stories and then pulls it out of the community to refine it outside of the community and then, you know, consume it outside of the community. So I often think of like Sundance and like the big festivals as being the kind of peak of this, right? Like the folks in those audiences, generally speaking, are not from the communities that documentaries are about. So when we're making our own work, that's our process. But I also think, and we're both kind of coming through this part of the pandemic and both off of big projects that launched during the pandemic, which was a really frustrating and hard time to have new work out. Um, so much of the work we do is also just like work, right? I think that the kind of auteur mythology of filmmaking is that you're just out there creating and that you're in that leadership role where like film work is gig work. And so, so much of our process is also just like keeping food on the table and making sure that we've just got clients lined up and we both work in a variety of post-production and production capacities on other people's work. And that's, you know, I kind of pay to play when I'm making my own documentary work. Yeah. Where I make a living <laughs> is when I'm getting hired to do stuff. Yeah, the process, and I know you talked about this later, but so much of the process is hustling and fundraising and um, trying to figure out like how we can film in locations in a kind of guerrilla style. Like how do we, like, you know, with the whistle, we admittedly snuck onto some high school campuses on off hours to film. And so there's just like, yeah, a lot of it is hustle uh, when you're doing it in this indie way um, with documentary. One thing we don't have to really, um, you know, we're not hiring actors. So that's, that's one thing. It's just like, what are we getting? How are we, um, getting it together in a way that is is feels collaborative with our participants mm -hmm. 
And um, also, how are we putting it out there in the way that feels collaborative with community? Mm -hmm. And you talk about, uh, that's just, uh, I think we're gonna talk a little bit about distribution later, but um, you know, part of distribution for both of us is to make sure that it's really accessible to especially the people that the work is about um, so that it does feel kind of by and for that there's on the pre-production and production and there's people um, who are of the communities involved um, through every step and that afterwards it's available. Well, that's, you know, that's incredible. You know, that's the purpose of queer film, you know, and obviously listening to you both talk about it, you know, it's not about the money, you know, there's not this return on investment in a monetary way. It's about being able to put your passion out there, the, the subjects that you're passionate about, making sure that people are able to witness, you know, this, this queer artistry. So, you know, um, we would love to hear about your passions with um, creating major and working with Miss Major. But before that, we would love, you know, you just mentioned distribution, so we might as well talk about it. You know, um, we want to talk about what platforms you use to get that queer content out there so that, you know, that queer art is accessible for everyone. Talking about accessibility, we would love to know what has your experience been like making sure that your content is accessible. You want to talk about the um, major to the people? I think that's a nice yeah. segue to that. Yeah, so you know, one of the things I do, um, of, I have an um, educational distribution company. So our um, sort of primary distribution has absolutely been in colleges and universities. Uh, and I love the educational market. Like that's a, I know I was first exposed to documentary in college um, as a medium. It's a really wonderful place to have your film not only seen, but really like critically analyzed and consumed. Like people have relationships with films that they see in educational settings. Um, but before we, like when we came off the festival circuit with major, one of the things that was our kind of peak commitment was getting the film in the hands of organizations, particularly organizations led by and for um, like BIPOC, trans and queer communities. Uh, free of charge. And so we were able to like get funding to help basically launch a sort of mostly national, but we really had a lot of international interest as well, campaign called Major to the People that was just getting, at the time, hard copies, like DVD copies, because we were like, it's media moves really fast. Now it's digital copies because we're doing much less physical media. Um, into the hands of organizations where they could share it with their members, have movie nights, be able to just like have it there as a sort of resource without having to go through any paid distribution platform. Um, and so we, the goal of the program was to get a copy of Major to a community-based organization in every state in the United States. And we did that, which was great. And we, we, that program is still alive and going. Uh, and so that feels, um, like one of the ways, like it's a very direct to community style of distribution, but a way of being able to say like, look, you can bring your people together to like watch a film and have it be there and see yourself in this mm -hmm. film. Um, yeah, not like not every film is gonna get on Netflix and HBO Max and actually like the whistle got in front of somebody at HBO Max and it was too slow paced for them. Like it wasn't fast and like exciting enough. and. And it's, it's slow pace. It's a film about Albuquerque, New Mexico. New Mexico is um, the, you call it the land of manana. Like, <laughs> it's like, we'll do it later, you know? And um, so 
I think that like, how, how do we get the films out in ways that, you know, it's like, I think there's a cool thing right now that it's, there's access to get our films out there one way or another, right? It'd be great to get picked up uh, because more people will see it if, you know, it's on Netflix or Hulu or one of the um, streaming platforms, but we also have Vimeo. We also have all these queer platforms. We have, um, you know, just this ways of self-distribution that we have access to now. And like, I think we're both very, you know, it's like, well, okay, if we're not gonna get the big distribution, we're gonna be DIY about it. We're gonna make sure it gets out there. Mm -hmm. You know, like um, the whistle is gonna be available um, on June 1st on Vimeo on demand. And like, I'm making sure that people know that if they can't afford to buy or rent it, that like, just hit me up and I'll, I'll get them a copy. Like we, we wanna make sure that people see these films and hear these stories. That's the most important piece for us. And of course, if it gets on a big digital platform, more people are going to have that access, but one way or another, like we're really trying to make sure that people have access to the stories, especially stories people aren't necessarily going to be hearing about in mainstream media. I think we're also seeing, you know, in between the like Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, and like self distribution on a VOD platform, there are so many streaming platforms that are queer and indie focused. And so I, I'm, I love seeing those come up. And I know, is, it, is um, The Whistle going to be on Les Films? Les, Les Flicks, Les yeah, Flicks, sorry. in the UK. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a platform in the UK, Les Flicks, that uh, is primarily lesbian, also non-binary uh, non films. And it is, um, they're, they're really cool. Uh, they're a cool platform. They're, um, yeah, they're going to be uh, hosting The Whistle yeah. in June as well. So I'm, I'm excited about the, you know, sort of spaces where, because I do think that the legacy of queer film, both narrative and documentary, is that we're very DIY, right? Like we're very, like we've traditionally not been funded by studios and so we make it ourselves. And I think that we're seeing that with the sort of, we saw this with the sort of rise of um, cable channels. I think about like Logo and Here and OutTV and the places where folks were starting to program. I also think a lot of those spaces that were the very first out tended to be like really about like white cis gay experiences um, and the kind of homo nationalism that came through the gay rights movement we see in our streaming platforms. Um, and so there's just this way in which like the next frontier is where we get to own the means of distribution, where we are running those streaming platforms where folks can come for content. Um, so I'm encouraged by the access that digital allows us to have. I do think that for documentary in particular, we've moved off of theatrical distribution as being like a sign that you've been distributed um, because there's just so many more ways for people to connect. And I would actually suggest that for documentaries, theatrical distribution has never been the way that we've, you know, 1% of documentaries are, are seen that way. The rest yeah. are all at home. And the f film festivals are the one okay. way for people to get to see our films in the theater, it seems. Um, and so there are great film festivals out there doing, um, showing our work. So. Yeah, it's actually, it's true. Queer film festivals are like just, they're kind of the lifeblood and that's where we get to see ourselves in theaters. Agreed. Agreed. Um, queer film festivals are the way I was introduced into filmmaking, such as going to Outfest or Frameline and even in New York with Newfest. And they're just great spaces for filmmakers, um, actors and all queer creators to just collaborate and um, feel seen. Um, where on the screen where mainstream television doesn't just doesn't highlight you. And so, so my question is kind of going a little bit back towards um, kind of going more deeper into both of the films that you've both worked on. So for instance, if you can kind of give me insight onto something memorable um, working on 
with Miss Major on Major, something that really stood out that um, kind of like blew your mind as a filmmaker or even as like a academic. Um, and then for Storm about the whistle, because you know I, I just watched it and I absolutely loved um, the whistle. I also love the animation. And I think in the credits it said that you're also, you provided additional graphics as well. Um, so if you can tell me um, both on your experience on working on these two documentaries and something really memorable about what you found um, and about the history, especially with the history of the whistle, I, I'm really intrigued if uh, you can talk about the whole coding um, in the community and from the 70s, 80s and how that coding might still be relevant um, today. It was really amazing to make the whistle. Uh, it, it was a bit of a reunion if you haven't seen the film. Um, it is a, a documentary about lesbian youth culture in Albuquerque, New Mexico in the 70s and 80s. And I'm trans and at the time was a young lesbian identified person uh, in Albuquerque. Um, I came out in 1987. I was wrecked in 1987. Watch the film if you want to know more about what that means. But wrecked is actually, wrecked is one of the code words we used. Um, it meant that you were out. It meant that, you know, we would say like, who wrecked you? Like, who was the first girl you kissed? Um, or we would say, don't wreck me in front of my boss, like don't out me, or is, is that person wrecked? Is that person out? And so um, the whistle kind of talks about some of these codes. You know, when I started to make the whistle, I kind of wondered if it was gonna be like an investigatory film about finding where the whistle came from. The whistle was a code we used. It was a, um, a whistle that we learned, went like that. And it was how we would get each other's attention. And if you knew the whistle, if somebody whistled at you at the time, it meant they were probably a dyke. Um, which is how we identified, or it was a way of getting, you know, finding out if somebody was a dyke. You would whistle at a crowded space if you saw somebody with like a mullet and, you know, looking like they had their, their sleeves zhuzhed and you would whistle. And if they turned around thinking it was their friends, probably, then you kind of give them a little nod. So we had these signals, these ways of finding each other and um, words that we used, wrecked, 143, which I found out goes way back into maybe the 50s and beyond, which was a code for I love you. Uh, one I love has four letters, four you has three letters, so one, four, three. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't know how these codes kind of bring us to today. I feel like today we have the internet. <laughs> we have the internet, we have um, other signals, other ways of signaling who we are. And um, also, we also have, you know, the ability to just be a little more out and most many spaces, more spaces than then, that's for sure. Um, so I think there's there's a lot of different ways of finding ourselves in each other now. Um, and then we didn't really have any of that. We, we And it wasn't safe to, to search, to seek it out. It didn't even feel safe to like walk in. There was a lesbian bookstore in Albuquerque, it was a lesbian feminist bookstore called Full Circle Book. And I remember just like walking in there initially and just being like, is okay, like, is, are people seeing me walk in here? Of course, at the time, nobody, we were so far under the radar that people didn't necessarily notice. So walking to that bookstore, people didn't really pay attention. But I just remember constantly being like, okay, I'm about to step foot into this space that is definitely queer. Are people looking at me? And, um, you know, I think now it, it doesn't feel so um, scary to do that. But uh, yeah, I think I just went off. <laughs> um, <laughs> making the whistle uh, some surprises or exciting things. I think if you watch the film, you'll learn about how 
uh, teens in the 80s in particular were being sent somehow by our parents. They were sending us to therapy. That in and of itself was really unusual, um, especially like in our like, you know, like Latina families, like therapy was something never brought up in my family ever once until I came out. And same with a lot of people who were interviewed. I was shocked when I realized people had a very similar story than I did because my mom made me go to a psychologist, which I just couldn't like fathom at the time. I went um, at the kind of, my dad was just like, well, just go, mija, maybe they'll help you figure out if this is what you want. And if not, you know, and if it is, you know, I bet it's not going to be easy. So maybe, so like my dad was really supportive. My mom was like, nope, you're going to change. So when I went and the, the psychologist was just like, you know what, you can't change for anyone but yourself. And that's only if you want to. And I was, that was like, a, that felt like a very, like, I thought I was probably the only person that ever happened to, right? That, that, that had that experience. Turns out other people my age in Albuquerque had a very almost mirrored experience. And so I learned that on, well, we were making the film and it just blew my mind. We would have these moments during filming where we were, because I shot it. So we would be leaning back behind the camera by the like, time the third person told the story of their incredibly culturally competent therapist, not setting them up for conversion therapy, but actually saying, actually, you're fine. The problem is in this homophobic culture. Like, yeah. And it was amazing to hear that story kind of come up over and over again, because it's also so different than the narrative you expect, right? We all expect a kind of conversion therapy narrative. And conversion therapy was like our, all of our moms, specifically our moms um, that who came up in the story were wanting us to change. So had they happened to come across conversion therapy, mm -hmm. that would have been, the, that would have been it for us. That, that would have been our path. And somehow they were like, well, we're going to take you to a psychologist and thinking that that was, how it was going to happen and the psychologist was like good yeah so anyway that was one of the biggest surprises for me making the film is learning that um that that was a, a more common story than i thought even possible i think for major um you know we we started major very much at major's invitation um she, i had worked with her on an instructional film that i had done in 2009 and then storm started working at tgi justice project as an administrator and i was just spending more time in the office visiting him and the tgi family is very much like it's a, a really tight-knit group of folks and major would start having these conversations with us where like there was a day where she's just like i had a dream that we made a movie about me and so we're just going to do it like this is it like if someone needs people keep telling me i need a movie about my life and we were like yeah you absolutely need a movie about your life um and we had worked together on a film and she'd gotten a sort of sense of what my working process was. This was 2013 that we went into production on this. Um, and so early on in the process, it was a very like, Miss Major, this is the story of your life. So you're the expert in your life. Let's talk about what the narrative should be. We had this like amazing pre-production meal at a Denny's where we just like sat down and like wrote out the timeline. Like what are the important, what do you think the most important aspects of your life are? And you never know in documentary what you're making, um, but there was a decision that we were doing a kind of retrospective biographical, traditional retrospective biographical documentary and then in the course of filming over a couple of years, all of these things were happening in real time. And there was a decision that we had to make of like, are we going to be making a more kind of journalistic, what fits into the kind of rubric of reality television that's sort of like dramas as they are unfolding film, or are we sticking with this retrospective? 
Um, and we chose to stick with the retrospective because it would have radically changed the kind of dual relationship that we have with Major, which is being in her community and in her circle, as well as being her documentarians. Uh, and so when things would happen that were um, traumatic and we lost several um, community members, close community members, including women who were interviewed in part of the story in the course of making the film, there were these decisions to be made about like, do you show up to this event with a camera or do you show up to this event with like yourself? And we made the decision to show up with ourselves and be community members in those moments, not documentarians. We weren't expecting to have to make those kinds of decisions um, in the way that we did yeah. during production. Yeah, you kept it authentic to what you were originally going to tell the story about, you know, and I think that it really speaks both to nature as well as the whistle about these queer spaces that we carve out for ourselves, these safe spaces that we have to create, these communities, which are, you know, um, we find through people who, you know, use those codes like the whistle and major, Miss Major, who creates this community around herself. Um, but so many of these stories, I feel like they transcend personal narrative because they speak to, you know, when these queer spaces are, are violated, you know, the, the external forces that, you know, force us to have to carve out spaces. And, you know, we, we think of films, you know, including nature, but like Free Cece and um, Susan Stryker's Screening Queens, you know, the riot at Compton's Cafeteria and, you know, Criminal Queers. And, you know, just thinking about, you know, the spaces we create, but also the, the type of advocacy and the type of work that we have to do, you know, with really creating a safe environment for us outside of those spaces. And a lot of that has to deal with um, the external forces of like abolition and defunding the police. Do you feel like even though the stories that you've created, they're these very personal subject stories, um, do you feel like they're still a part of you know, this continuum of trans liberation and the representation that we have in the media landscape. Well, I think, I think Major is absolutely an abolitionist film. And I think in, in being a narrative that is, that was centered on and driven by the communities it is about, um, the hope is that that kind of film work is um, transformational and revolutionary. I also think that in like 2021, <laughs> what even year is it? <laughs> like if Major were to come to me today and ask me to make this film, I would say um, that she, we should find a trans director and community to make the film. Um, and I would be delighted to participate like in a support capacity or to crew on it. But I also think that we are like well past the point of cis people helming these stories. Um, and that was, you know, that was a consideration when I did say yes in 2013, and we did a lot of work to try to like bracket that. But I think one of the things that makes trans and queer film revolutionary is that it is told by the communities that it is about. And that's really a necessity. I also know for myself as an abolitionist that my work might not be centered on abolitionist themes, although I certainly part of the doing work in community is, is doing video work for TJJP and, and just trying to say, hey, I've got a camera, do you need it? Um, but I think that those, 
I think that analysis comes through in our story and it's necessary. Mm -hmm. I think that if you have that perspective, you keep the casual propaganda out of your films. You keep those just sort of subtle, not particularly analytical or critical ways that we just sort of celebrate policing and the prison industrial complex as sometimes a neutral entity when it is never a neutral entity out of our narratives and that that's an important perspective to have as a, as a media maker. You know, The Whistle is not necessary. it's not an abolitionist film. Um, I don't even think it's really a trans film, although I have uh, one of the participants continues to say this is also a trans film, which I, I just love because because she talks about like I'm coming, I'm kind of coming home to this community that helped bring me up. And, um, you know, I think everything I have worked on um, or had a say in, whether it be production, um, directing, um, even editing, I'll, I'll definitely throw in my my um, my filter is going to be there. My and my abolitionist filter is going to be is going to is going to be there. It's going to um, inform what I do. You know, in the whistle, we definitely talk about police raids, and I think that um, you know that that felt like an important thing to bring up to talk about police raids to talk about what's going on today and how um, we're still being affected by um, this. Uh, the prison industrial complex and white supremacy and all of the ways that this this you know everything this country is rooted in is going to affect all of all of where we're at like moving forward as long as this, this we exist in this system. So you know I think that it's important for me to like on Elise and make sure that these narratives don't like casually slip in. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why it's so important to have a uh, representation behind the camera as well as also in front of the camera. And so that kind of brings us to our current uh, landscape about representation of what are your thoughts about where we're moving towards uh, representation um, in filmmaking? And, you know, we talked about kind of like this queer reclamation through um, these platforms being made like Les Flicks, like Deco, um, Out TV, and uh, telefilms and you know we have that but then you know but then we have all the other films going on in the mainstream um, making theatrical releases um, you know having uh, cis white people uh, filming trans or playing trans characters so kind of give your thoughts about you know the representation that we're seeing right now and what you think as queer filmmakers and queer artists what we can be doing better to help uh, help do better in representation in media. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, we're still having the argument about who should be playing trans characters, who should be playing BIPOC characters. Like we're still having people who aren't of these groups playing these characters still. This is still happening. It's still gonna continue to happen. So, you know, I think that most of the bulk of the work needs to be done in that world. Like I feel like queer and trans filmmakers are, are already doing this work. And not, of course, not across the board, like there's always work to be done, mm -hmm. but we're not having access to where the real work, like where, to where the work really needs to be done, right? The work that, that is the, the, the most visible and the most funded um, that actually does like set the tone of representation, set where the reference points are going to be for other people, that's mainstream media, right? So. You know, I think about how, you know, the only, one of the only questions anyone in my family has ever asked me about being trans was, well, what do you think about Caitlyn Jenner? Like, so that means that that is where the reference points are, right? And I, like, like I don't, I don't think about Caitlyn Jenner, right? Like, 
here's what I'm thinking about and here's who I'm thinking about and here's where that comes from. But of course, people outside of our own communities often don't get a, a chance to hear these, these actual, who, who we are, you know, and that's not, um, and that's a failing of, of the world, the, the gatekeepers um, and, and I guess the consumers, I don't know. I mean, it's, I first, I think like Jen Richards completely answered the question forever in Disclosure, right? Like, which is such a brilliant documentary. And I do love having, I love what, what Sam created with that documentary also as this just, I think, unfortunately, kind of timeless record that you can just point people to just be like, ah, I see you have not come to this bridge yet. Sit down and watch this. Um, and it's just so, so brilliantly, so brilliantly done. I love that work. Um, but I, I also think that, you know, it's these, there's strata. And so there's the creator strata and like, who's being funded to be creators and, and that absolutely we're going to need creators from within community to tell not just our own stories, but just broader stories, right? Because I also only ever get invited to do stories on gender. And like, I can do a lot of things that aren't just about like women's experiences, but I'm never invited to do those. Like I'm called in when someone needs a queer voice or someone needs a, a lady to talk about things. And, um, and, you know, like invite marginalized creators to make things about more than just their slice of the margin is like a huge part of this. But then also I do think at that like gatekeeping level at that ultimate production level, studio heads, the like financiers, the folks that are green lighting are still going to be overwhelmingly cishet white dudes who are going to resonate with certain stories as being the real story, which is why we end up with all these trauma narratives because that's the story that whomever is like fundamentally greenlighting the project thinks is worthy of being told. Um, and, and that I think happens in film. I think that happens, I hear stories about that happening in publishing, the ways in which we just like have been spoon fed a fairly artificial narrative that's been really driven by dominant social groups. So that then when the more authentic narrative comes out, those dominant social groups go, oh, that's not the narrative. That's not the real story. Why give us this thing? We wanna, we wanna see that. So you know, it took us 50 years to get out of like kill your gays. It gave, became it gave us all this time to get out of like all the gay characters will be evil and die. They still are though. And now we're like half and half. Um, and you know, I'm a I'm a genre nut. So like a part of my thing too is I don't necessarily watch dramas. Um, I certainly don't watch rom coms. I like things with aliens and explosions. Like that's my jam and horror. And so queer representation in the genres that I love is abysmal. And it's also the space where I would expect it to flourish the most because we're in these magical, um, fantastical, science fictional, futurist settings where we can imagine things well outside of our oppression. So why I'm not getting like a full gender spectrum and all kinds of like same gender loving in these genre spaces has everything to do with the studios that produce them and what's considered family friendly and of course, we're still not considered family friendly. Um, so I like to think about um, Gina Prince Bywood's um, The Old Guard that came out on Netflix this last year. The mm -hmm. pandemic has folded time. I don't even know when yeah, that's happened. Yeah. But one of the things I loved about that film, which is of course on a comic, a graphic novel franchise or series, um, is that not only do we not kill our gays, we've moved on to immortal gays. And that's the thing. I'm like, we kill our gays so much that actually yeah. the moratorium on that, it never gets to happen. From here on out, I need superpowers and immortality. And that's all I'm gonna accept. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's the kind of thing I wanna see is 
where we don't have to just be telling coming out narratives yeah. or trauma narratives or narratives that are about our identity as being the only thing we do. Um, I'm trying to think of who on social media I just recently said, like nothing in front of a mirror. Like, please do not put our people in front of a mirror mm -hmm. doing anything ever again. We're post that. I've seen enough of it. Um, and I would really like um, superpowers and some aliens and explosions and some and some horror to see some just like strong, awesome, um, queer, trans and envy folks yeah. in, in those roles. Yeah, I definitely do like the thing because same, I'm I, I'm a huge, huge fantasy lover myself. And I, I think that we're starting to move towards a space where at least in the fantasy magical realm that more queer characters are being shown, especially in animation, in my opinion. I think animation is doing amazing work in terms of represent, representing identities across the spectrum. Yeah, I get it in comic books, hilariously, right? Like my comic books are super queer. It's just like it, that leap to the screen doesn't happen. And publishing is, is getting there really nicely. Um, but that leap to the screen just hasn't happened. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think that's what we're seeing. And I it's really the content that we want. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's incredible because, you know, companies like Marvel that are owned by Disney, like they have, you know, queer narratives in their comic books, but they don't create other content from that. So, you know, I think we're finding a lot of what we want, a lot of the genres that we want on indie levels. You know, we don't have that in the mainstream yet, but hopefully, hopefully we will. So, you know, if there were ever a watershed moment to be able to create all that content, we would certainly, certainly do. Um, you know, as we wrap up, we'd love to hear about what projects that you both are working on currently, you know, uh, share some more love about the whistle, if you want it, you know, what do we have to look forward to for both of you? Well, I am, so my last project, um, which is a docu-series called Looking for Leia was on sci-fi during the year that we were all on lockdown, which was great for walking, but watching, but also kind of knocked the year of being on the convention circuit out <laughs> from under us. But generally speaking, whenever I come off a project, I just like to crew up for a bit and and help other like work as a part of that team. I love the collaborative nature of filmmaking. Like filmmaking is really about groups of people coming together. So I don't have my own project um, on any burner right now. I've been um, mostly just working in post um, doing some work for hire and getting really excited about working on other people's projects, including Storm's next project, which I don't know if we'll get him to talk about because I'm very, I'm very excited about it, but it's like, it's in development right it now. It is so in development right now, but um, my next project is going to be, so this is me kind of moving from documentary into narrative and the way I envision that is by doing a kind of more of a mockumentary because mm -hmm. I, I know how to do documentary. So let's, Let's bring that in and take some baby steps. So yeah, it's going to be kind of mockumentary style film that you think is about coming out, but ends up maybe being about aliens. I love it. I want so, to think I have Yeah. Another film that's going to be shot in uh, New Mexico that is going to be centering um, my upbringing. So it's going to be a film that I'm going to be a part of. It's kind of an extension of the whistle in a way, but going uh, down south um, to Roswell, where my dad was born, 
And um, I think, you know, it's, it's being developed, it's being written, it's going to be hopefully uh, tender comedy. And, uh, and that's, that's what I, that's what I can say about it right now. Um, but I am, I am, I'm working on it. It's very early development stages. So I'm excited about that. And uh, the whistle is being released on Vimeo on demand this Tuesday, Tuesday, June 1st. Mm -hmm. And um, so I'm excited about that, that it's finally going to be able to, because we just did the film festival circuit, which was really wonderful and lovely. Um, it and was entirely all virtual. entirely virtual. I was, I was, I, and also the participants were really bummed not to be traveling. All of us were so excited to be meeting up in different states. And um, so we all, <clears throat> excuse me, met up on Zoom in Zoom Q and A's instead, which was really delightful. It meant more people um, had access to it than might have, and now even more people have access to it. So I'm really excited to get to get it out there. And also, again, like if folks can't afford to rent or buy it, just hit me up, direct message me on Twitter at Storm Miguel or The Whistle Film. And uh, there's links there that are pinned uh, to those accounts if you want to know how to pre-order it or start watching it on Tuesday. Major is available um, free on Amazon Prime uh, and also on Vimeo On Demand. Um, and so you can go to um, at the Major Doc on Twitter or MissMajorFilm.com for all of those links. Awesome. Thank you so much. And we'll definitely put all your social links and um, in our description below. So listeners definitely go check them out now and get ready to watch The Whistle. And if you haven't already watched Major, please go watch Major. It's such an important film to watch. Thank you so much for having us um, and sitting down with us, Annalise and Storm. It's been such a pleasure to have you here. Thanks for having yes, us. Thank we you. really appreciate it. Thanks for the conversation.